invite you to open your Bibles this morning to, again, to the Old Testament, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. If you go to the, uh, maybe turn about a third, a quarter to a third of the way through your Bible, hopefully you'll land in First or 2 Samuel there. Um, uh, that distinction between First and Second Samuel is really just a distinction uh, kind of between scrolls that were probably used to tell the story. The book of Samuel, First and Second, tells kind of the whole story of how David became king in Israel and uh, kind of what his life and his reign was like. First Samuel is full of a lot of contention and how a king came about uh, the first time. The, the first king that preceded David was Saul, and Saul was not particularly a very good king, uh, but he was the king that the people wanted. Uh, and so God gave them what they wanted, kind of as a, a means of judgment there. Uh, and after Saul would have kind of the kingdom removed from him, it became clear that God was calling David to be his choice for king of his people, Israel. And most of First Samuel is this contention back and forth between Saul and David, mostly Saul hating and wanting to kill David as he knew that God's favor was on him. Second Samuel has David rising to the throne in Israel and serving and reigning as king. This is the last in our series of, of Christmas characters from uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You'll remember these familiar words. Matthew begins his gospel. We'll get to 2 Samuel 11, I promise. Matthew begins his gospel this way, his story of Jesus' life. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez by Zerah and by uh, of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We've been looking this last month uh, through December at these four women that are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus as he begins his gospel. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and now today, the wife of Uriah, as Matthew calls her. Today we look at a woman without a name, sort of. It's not that she is nameless, but that her name doesn't quite carry the weight of her situation. Today, we look at the wife of Uriah. We know her as Bathsheba from 2 Samuel 11, which is probably the most uh, maybe influential uh, event in her life as, as we see it in Scripture. We learn from her name. We, we don't learn quite from her name what we need to learn from her title, the title that Matthew gives her, the wife of Uriah. In fact, there's a lot more of her story that is implied in calling her the wife of Uriah than just by simply mentioning her name, Bathsheba. Her story, as we'll see in 2 Samuel 11, is one of God's sovereign care for victims of sin and of God's demand for repentance and of God's supply of grace for grievous sinners. All through the month of December, we've been looking at these Christmas characters, these women, these Old Testament female saints who appear in Jesus' genealogy, to, to learn what, to, to see what can we learn about Jesus at Christmas by looking at the lives of these women. Today, as we look at the life of the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, we will find that Jesus is God's Messiah for victims of sin and for repenting sinners of all stripes. This is our main idea from the text today. Jesus is God's Messiah for victims of sin and for repenting sinners of all stripes. 
And so as we see this truth in 2 Samuel 11, I, I implore us, let us receive as righteous king Jesus who is for all of us. No matter your background, no matter what you've been through in life, no matter what you've done in life, Jesus is for you. I'd invite you to stand, uh, if you would, as we honor God by reading his word. We're going to read all of 2 Samuel 11, not all in one stretch, but we'll start just in verse 1. You can follow along in your copy of God's word or on the screens behind me. We read in God's word these words, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord, and we'll read more of it in a moment. Uh, let us be blessed in its hearing. You may be seated. As Second Samuel 11 starts in verse 1, we get the setup. We get the setup for all the events that are about to take place later. And verse 1 of chapter 11 of Second Samuel might not seem like it's saying a lot, but it's saying a lot. Verse 11, by, by now David has already been king in Jerusalem for some time, or king of Israel for some time. And we are told here, in the spring of the year, in the time when kings go out to battle, David the king stayed home. That ought to pique your interest. That, that ought to get your, your, the, the wheels in your brain spinning just a little bit. Hold on. If this is the time when kings go to battle, and David is the king, he should be going to battle, right? Wrong. He sends... One of his generals, Joab, and all those servants, and they go out to war against the Ammonites, kind of the perennial enemies of the people of Israel. And they are successful in their military campaign. But we are told in all of that time, David stayed home. Your antenna should be up. Something bad is about to happen. David the king is not doing what kings are supposed to do. Something bad is about to take place. So we continue on in Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 11, same chapter, verses 2 through 5. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Well, there you have it. We had the setup in verse 1. In verses 2 through 5, we have from 2 Samuel 11 the, the sin that is really at the heart of this chapter. This is, this is what 2 Samuel 11 and David and Bathsheba is all about, this illicit affair between this king uh, and this woman. Now, as we read these verses, there are some things that we should notice. It, it is sometimes tempting, uh, I don't really know why, but it's sometimes tempting to look at David as the righteous king, the man after God's own heart, who, who never does anything wrong, and to want to put one of those spaghetti western white cowboy hats on him and assume that he always does the right thing all of the time. Friends, get that notion out of your head. David is not a sinless man. David is not a sinless character. David is unambiguously unrighteous in this passage. Lots of bad things take place here. It starts with David not going to war, not going to battle when he's supposed to, but it continues when one day as he's reclining on his couch while his soldiers are out fighting in the field, he decides to get up and take a walk 
on the roof of his home in the breeze of the in the cool of the day. Now it's not uncommon for people in uh, in that area of Palestine on on warm days to go spend the afternoons on the roof of their house where you could kind of feel a cool breeze come by. Remember, there's not you know central heating or cooling or even swamp coolers there, and so you just have to make the best of of what nature provides you. So sometimes being on the roof of your house was the most pleasant place to be. So David, who has a, a commanding location for his home in the city of Israel, up on a high place, he goes up on his roof, on the roof of his home, of his palace, where he can see everything. From the position of the king's home, he can see effectively the whole city if he wants to. And as he's out just chilling on the roof, he's looking around, and he sees on another roof a woman bathing. We know, we, learn, we come to learn that this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And we should understand, sometimes we think, well, there, here's a woman out bathing on her roof in the middle of the day. That's really improper. Well, it might would be improper for people living in the West like we do today, where we have indoor plumbing and that sort of thing. But for her, it, may, it probably was not very improper altogether. On her roof, probably most other people could not see her. It was one of the more private places in her home. Except, remember, the king's house is up on a hill, so he oversees all things. And so Bathsheba's not here enticing David in any way. In fact, it, it assumes a certain kind of arrogance, I think, even in Bathsheba, that she would know, oh, David's going to look over his roof at my house today, so I better go get naked and sit on the roof. People just don't think that way generally. And there's nothing even in the text of God's word to tell us that any of this is in Bathsheba's mind. There's nothing in 2 Samuel 11 to tell us that she's some sort of sinful seductress who's trying to get into the bedroom of the king. That's not the case at all. What 2 Samuel 11 does tell us is that David, who was supposed to be at war, is now lazily and lustfully looking out from the top of his house to see what he can see. And he sees Bathsheba. He sends someone to find out who she is. Who is this beautiful woman that I see? And news comes back to him that uh, this is a woman who is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, it's interesting. Uriah is mentioned later in 2 Samuel 23 as one of David's mighty men, one of his most trusted and valiant soldiers. But he's also a Hittite, which means he's a Canaanite. He's not from among the people of Israel. He's an outsider who's fighting for the people of Israel. More than this, we know that uh, uh, Bathsheba is not just the wife of one of David's most trusted soldiers, but she's also the daughter of Eliam, who we learn is one of David's uh, mighty heroes counted among Uriah. And she's also the granddaughter of Ahithophel, we learn from 2 Samuel 23, who is one of David's most trusted counselors. So when news comes to David about who this beautiful woman is, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the daughter of Eliam, the granddaughter of Ahithophel, David should have known better than to do what he did next. This is a woman who is not a stranger to him. This is a woman who is covenantally bound to many people that are part of his inner circle. And beyond that, David also had the law of God from Exodus chapter 19 uh, and chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, one of which is, you shall not commit adultery. So all the things that are about to take place, David already knew he ought not do. And yet, he does them anyway. See, if you will, the indignity of David's sin in this passage. We are told that David takes Bathsheba, that he lays with Bathsheba, and then he sends her home. David does all that he wants with this woman. And and we don't have any words of protest from her, but, but think about it. What is a woman 
going to do in the face of the king, the man who can do whatever he wants to do. He's called for her. He summoned her to his palace. He's the king. If the king tells you to do something, you don't have a whole lot of options but to do it. And particularly as a woman, a woman who did not have power necessarily in that culture to confront David the king. She is used by this man, abused by this man. He takes her. He lays with her. He sends her home. This plays out like so many narratives of sexual abuse that we hear in our society today. Friends, the Me Too movement is not a new thing. Like These stories that come out of Me Too are old, as old as David and Bathsheba. She is one who was taken advantage of by this king, by this man of power. It's often been said, you want to know what a man is really like? Give him power. Give him authority and see what he does with it. You want to know what David is like? Here he has power as king of all Israel. And what does he do? He stays home from battle and takes a woman who is not his wife into his home. That's the sin. That's the indignity of this passage. When we read in Matthew's gospel that David fathered Solomon by the wife of Uriah, we are reminded that David is an adulterer, that he took a woman that didn't belong to him to do what he wanted with. Now, this sin does not come without consequence, does it? As verse 5 tells us, a period of time passes and the woman conceived. Bathsheba gets pregnant as a result of David's action with her. And she sent and told him, told David, I am pregnant. And now the story gets really interesting. Now what? Perhaps the sin that, that, that David perhaps thought he could just, you know, get away with once and let it go and no big deal, move on to the next thing. No, now there are lasting consequences. Something has come about as a result of their time together, of, as a result of, of David's lustful choices to take this woman into his home. And so the story continues. Follow along in verses 6 through 25. The woman conceived. She sent to David and said, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, one of his generals, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, uh, asked how, how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and he did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David sent to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not then go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel, he's speaking of the ark of the covenant, that box overlaid with gold with cherubim on top that had the, held the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and a jar of manna, that ark of the presence of the Lord that went before Israel in all battle. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, Uriah said, dwell in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in, the pre- in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. 
that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Do you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? He's speaking about a, a battle that took place in the time of the judges. Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you should also say to the king, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So we have the setup. David, he's the king. At the time the kings are supposed to go out to war, David stays home. We have the sin. David is there on the roof. He sees Bathsheba. He calls her, uh, sends for her to be brought into his chambers. He has his way with her. She becomes pregnant. David finds out that she's become pregnant. And now this sets into, into motion a cover-up. The setup, the sin, and now the cover-up attempt. It cannot be known that the king of Israel has had an illicit affair with the wife of one of his most trusted soldiers, the daughter of one of his other most trusted soldiers, and the granddaughter of one of his most trusted counselors. So what does David do? Tries to create another scenario whereby no one will, will assume or suppose or be suspicious about his actions, that he has anything to do with Bathsheba's pregnancy. So he makes the first attempt to cover up his sin. He calls Uriah back from the battlefront to Jerusalem. And <clears throat> kind of under the guise of, of getting an update on how things are going on the battlefield. And he says to Uriah, hey, bud, while you're home, go back to your house and see your wife. And by the way, here's a lovely little you know, gift basket of, I don't know, dates and figs and wine and whatever else to you know, help your evening go along with your wife. The assumption by David is, if I just get Uriah to come home, he'll go home to his wife, they'll sleep together, find out that she's pregnant, and, and then I'm off the hook. Everyone will assume that the child is Uriah's. In fact, there will be plausible deniability um, by myself, and, and the whole thing will be covered up. Pretty, pretty good plan, right? Problem is, Uriah is a more honorable man than David. Uriah, the Hittite, the man from the Canaanite people who's fighting on behalf of Israel, who's living as a, as a citizen in Jerusalem, will not do what the king tells him to do. Why? Because all of his compatriots, all of his comrades, all of his fellow soldiers are out fighting in battle, fighting a war for the, the nation of Israel. And Uriah says, if my guys are out there fighting and sleeping in the fields and sleeping in tents and at danger all the time, who am I to take advantage of this opportunity to enjoy myself? So he doesn't go home. David finds out the next day that Uriah didn't go home. David's kind of disappointed. That was a really nice gift basket I sent and it just goes to nothing. So he says to Uriah, okay, uh, just hang out here in Jerusalem for a couple more days and I'll send you back. So he, during that time, he invites Uriah over one night to eat, and he stuffs Uriah full of all the best food, and he fills Uriah with all of the best drink to the point that Uriah is drunk. 
David thinking, if I can just get the guy drunk, then he'll go home and then he'll do what I need him to do so I can have plausible deniability. But we find that Uriah's convictions run even deeper than wine can cover over. Even in his drunken stupor, he doesn't go home to his wife. Instead, he again sleeps outside uh, the palace with the other soldiers and the other king's servants. Uriah is in this way, I think, the ironic opposite of David the king. He is a man who will not go home to enjoy his wife because it's wartime. And David is the one who as king will not go to war and instead stays home and enjoys another man's wife. So attempt to cover up the sin number two does not work. So David goes to his last resort, attempt number three, and this one's successful. His third attempt to cover up his sin is to have Uriah killed. So he, he writes a note, puts the king's seal on it so that it won't be open until it gets to the battlefront. He sends this note with Uriah back to Joab the general, Uriah effectively carrying his own death sentence to Joab the general. And, and as Joab reads it, what he finds out that David wants him to do is go uh, set Uriah with some other uh, valiant men at the, the part of the hardest fighting there. Uh, in the battle, so that Uriah uh, and and and, and Joab, uh, excuse me, David gives Joab instruction to it, at one point call all of the men back except Uriah, so that he'll be left alone and will die in the field of battle. And Joab effectively follows those instructions. Now we don't really know. I struggle to know like how Joab could do this, thinking this is a good thing. But again, David's the king, and you deny the king, what happens to you? It's usually off with your head, right? So Joab follows orders, puts Uriah in uh, with the hardest part of the fighting. He's killed in battle. And Joab is a little bit afraid, and he tells the messenger, hey, you need to go back to Jerusalem. And you tell the king that uh, this fighting has occurred and that Uriah has died along with some other people. And if, the king, and if the king is angry, be sure to underline the point that Uriah is also dead. He'll get the point then. So this messenger goes back to Jerusalem, tells David everything that happened. We went, we were fighting, uh, we pursued them all the way to the gates, their archers shot, a bunch of people are dead, including Uriah. And see David's really flippant response, I think, to the news. He doesn't even pretend to be sorry. Instead, he just throws out this kind of flippant proverb. Sword devours, now one, now another. No big deal. Redouble your efforts, win the war. Sometimes people die in battle, says David. Finish the job. The cover-up's complete. David doesn't mourn Uriah's death because now he's got an opportunity to, to, to fix the situation himself. David is glad Uriah is dead. And at this moment, David is not only, in 2 Samuel 11, an adulterer. Now, he's also a murderer. The story goes on. Read verses 26 and the first part of 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. It's interesting, she's the only one who grieves Uriah's death. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So we've seen the setup, we've seen the sin, we've seen the cover-up, which is now successful. And here in these last two verses, we see David's favor to Bathsheba. Let me help you out, dear widow of one of my most trusted soldiers. Now that Uriah is out of the way and after Bathsheba is done mourning, David does her the favor, and I put that in scare quotes because I mean it ironically or sarcastically, he does her the favor of marrying her. Now, now we've seen um, in, in 
past explorations of these women at Christmas, this practice of leveret marriage. When there's a woman from among the people of Israel who is widowed, whose husband dies, another man, uh, usually of the same family clan as her husband, is, is obligated to marry her, take her into his home as her wife and bear children with her, that the, uh, that the man who died, that the deceased's name might not stop but continue on through their offspring. It is quite possible that David here is, is pretending to do the noble thing in marrying Bathsheba, this recent widow, who, by the way, was married to a Canaanite, right? Remember, Uriah is a Hittite, so there's no one from among the clans of Israel uh, who can marry uh, Bathsheba to carry on Uriah's name uh, uh, through the, the offspring of their marriage. So it may appear that David is doing the really noble thing as the king in taking this widow into his home to care for her. But ultimately, this favor is just to cover up his adultery so that he can continue the farce of plausible deniability that anything bad had happened. He marries her. He brings her into his home so that no one will ask questions about where this baby came from. It is just one more indignity that I believe is done to Bathsheba. Now here this widow becomes wife of the king and none of the truth is ever told. Verse 27 finishes this way. Uh, When the morning was over, David sent, brought her into his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And if we were to cut it off there, we could say, and no one was the wiser. But God's word finishes this way. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the final final point of emphasis for us here as as we walk through this narrative is the Lord's displeasure with what David has done. Though David thinks he's pulled the wool over everyone's eyes and papered over the whole incident with with just wonderful skill, he has not fooled the one who sees all things. He has not pulled the wool over God's eyes. He has not confounded the one who knows all things. And he has not hidden his injustice against the one who judges sin righteously. The most powerful man among all of God's people is not able to hide his sin from the God who put him in that place to begin with. So what in the world does Bathsheba's presence then, knowing her story as it's, as it's related to us in 2 Samuel 11, what does Bathsheba's presence in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew teach us? When we read that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, what ought we to think about the Savior Jesus who comes from this line? Well, first of all, this, that Jesus is a savior for the voiceless, for the used, and for the betrayed. Jesus is a redeemer for the voiceless, for the used, and the betrayed. In this whole scenario, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, Bathsheba is recorded saying three words in English, I am pregnant. That's all she says in the whole chapter. In truth, she is a person of limited power who is used by a powerful man and widowed by means of conspired murder. And yet, she will be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. The very fact that this woman is included in the lineage of Jesus, God's Messiah, the eternal Son of God, adding humanity to his divinity to come into the world to be our Savior. The fact that Bathsheba is present in his lineage and specifically mentioned in his genealogy points us to the reality that she is not unseen. 
that she is not unheard and she is not neglected by God. He sees her. God knows her. He is intimately acquainted with all of the indignity that is done against her. And God honors this voiceless, used, betrayed woman by including her as a pivotal person in his grand redemption plan. Friend, if you feel voiceless, if you've been used or abused, if you've been betrayed or cast aside or conspired against, know for certain that Christ is for you. There is no cry of your heart that goes unheard. There is no no abuse that you endure that he will not judge in his perfect holiness. And there is no betrayal that he cannot redeem for his glory and your ultimate good. Friend, Jesus is a redeemer for the voiceless, the used, and the betrayed. Second, we learn by Bathsheba's presence in Jesus' genealogy that Jesus is a savior for repenting sinners. He's a redeemer for the voiceless, for victims of sin. But he's also a redeemer for repenting sinners. It's kind of amusing when we see that Bathsheba is not really mentioned by name in Matthew's genealogy. She's just called the wife of Uriah. This is not meant to be a a slight by Matthew, like like Bathsheba is somehow she who must not be named. We can't can't talk about her because you you, you know what all goes on with that. No, that's not the case. Rather, I believe Matthew is drawing our attention not to Bathsheba as this horrible person whose name can't be mentioned, but by calling her the wife of Uriah, Matthew, the gospel writer, is calling our attention to the very deep sin of David the king. David commits two of the most heinous sins that one of God's people can commit. He stole another man's wife, and he had that man murdered. When we read the wife of Uriah in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus comes from the offspring of the wife of Uriah, we're reminded that, that this is a woman who, who is the subject of adultery and the recipient of the, the consequences of murder. We cannot read Second Samuel 11 and miss the very grave sins of David, the king of Israel. At the same time, we do not need to go but to the next chapter of 2 Samuel to see David boldly confronted by Nathan the prophet who tells him this parable, this story about uh, there was a a man who who owned a a sheep and that that sheep, that lamb in his home was like one of his own children and there was a nobleman uh, who also lived in the country who was going to hold a large feast for some guests that came and rather than slaughtering one of his own own lambs, he went and stole the the childlike lamb of this man who, who only had the one sheep and he slaughtered that sheep and feeds it to the people that are coming to his big banquet. Nathan the prophet says to David the king, what should be done to the man that does this thing? And Nathan, or David's response is, string him up. How dare he steal this precious lamb from this guy and his family? How awful. Let justice be done. Off with his head. And Nathan looks the king square in the eye, maybe the the boldest person in all of David's life, and says to David, you are the man. You're the one that stole the lamb in this thing that you've done with Bathsheba. And when Nathan, empowered by the Lord, boldly confronts David the king, David repents in deep sorrow over his sin. This is a good thing to note. And it's not a good... David's repentance does not make everything that he's done with Bathsheba okay. That doesn't paper over the whole incident like, oh, nothing to see here. No, but it is the right response to be confronted by your grave sin to repent. 
Psalm 51 records David's repentance, his prayer of of turning from sin and his dependence on God to cleanse him. Listen to David's words from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 7, a psalm of repentance that is attributed to this moment in his life where he committed this sin with Bathsheba. David says in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. The very good news of Jesus coming from this couple, David and Bathsheba. Now, he doesn't come from the son that is born to Bathsheba that was conceived here by this act of adultery. That son dies. Solomon comes later. But the fact that Jesus comes from these two together reminds us that Jesus doesn't only come for the voiceless and the abused and the neglected, but Jesus also comes for sinners, really, really bad ones, like David even. He comes for sinners who are willing to repent. He comes for sinners who, when confronted with their sin, when confronted with the reality that they have have offended God by seeking their own glory and their own way over His design for their lives, which, by the way, friends, is all of us, When sinners see their sin and go to God with repentant hearts, seeking cleansing, that God gives it. Matthew, the gospel writer, who mentions the wife of Uriah in Jesus' genealogy, uh, went by another name, Levi. And when Jesus called Matthew, called Levi, to follow him as his disciple, he decided to throw a party at Levi's house, at Matthew's house. Now, Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were generally hated by, uh, by the, the people uh, of Israel in that, uh, in that day, the day of Jesus, because they were Israelites by nationality, but politically they had allegiances to Rome. They were taking the taxes from their kinsmen and passing it on to Rome and keeping some for themselves and often becoming very wealthy in the process. Jesus throws a party at the tax collector's house when the tax collector decides to be a follower of Jesus. And there at Matthew's house, in Levi's house, with all these Pharisees, these these, uh, legalistic religious leaders come and see this going on and they accuse Jesus of being one who's cavorting with, uh, with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all these horrible kinds of people. Jesus responds to them. We read this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 30. 31 and 32. Jesus says to all those who are saying, how dare you hang out with these sinners? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Really, really bad ones, even like David. The presence of Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus reminds us that Jesus comes to redeem really, really bad sinners, even like David even like murderers and adulterers, like the king of Israel, if only they'll repent and turn to God for grace. The third thing that we learn about Jesus from Bathsheba's presence, the wife of Uriah's presence in his genealogy, is that Jesus is the king in the line of David who is far, far, far better than David. 
There was a promise that was given by God to David in 2 Samuel 7, just a few chapters before our focal passage today, that God would establish David's offspring's kingdom forever. There would be a son that would come from David, one in his lineage who would reign forever. And from the moment of that promise in 2 Samuel 7, God's people had been looking forward to that king in the line of David who would reign forever. In fact, they had been waiting about a thousand years for that king to come along by the time that Jesus was born. Friends, Jesus is that king. He is the son of David who will rule forever. He is recognized by the sick and the ailing all throughout his earthly ministry as the son of David which is a title with much messianic expectation. And and though his kingdom is not a part of this world, it doesn't come from the systems of this world, Jesus' kingdom is far better than any kingdom that this world can produce. Moreover, friends, because Jesus is the sinless Son of God, he is forever a better king than David. This much is true. Jesus is most certainly not the king that we deserve. But he is definitively the king that we desperately need. And friends, he is a king for you. Whether you're a victim of sin in need of a rescuer, or whether you are a repenting sinner in need of a savior, this Jesus is for you. This morning we'll pause. As you came in, you probably found in your seat a a little uh, communion packet or Lord's Supper packet. And hopefully you haven't torn into that yet, but... This morning, we we pause on the final Sunday of 2021 to remind ourselves in a tangible way that the king that we do not deserve but desperately need has come. He has arrived. He was born that first Christmas over 2,000 years ago, that he lived a sinless life in our place, that he died for our sins on the cross, and he was raised from the dead in our place so that all who would trust in him would be made new, would be forgiven of sin, receive God's grace. This morning we take the Lord's Supper together, this little bit of bread, this cup that we drink, to remind all of us who have come under His grace and come into the life that He gives as we trust in Him as Lord, that that He is King of our lives. Before you get into the packets, we're going to sing a song of response and reflection. And take some time to think on our need for Christ. Even as Christians who confess Jesus as Lord, we still need him day by day. And so we're going to sing a song to help us to reflect on that here in a moment before we take these elements together. Friends, this is a, a meal, this little bit of bread, this cup that we drink. This is a meal that is for Christians. It's for those who have come to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, who have made their trust in Jesus public through believers' baptism, as we saw uh, last week with uh, Annalee and Owen professing their faith publicly in baptism. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, in the same way that, that we are today, we would simply ask you to refrain from taking uh, the Lord's Supper today, because in doing it, you would be professing a faith that you do not have. Parents, if you have children or grandparents, you have children with you who have not made a public profession of faith in Christ and followed him in believer's baptism, we encourage you, use this as an opportunity, not for your children to partake in something they don't have faith in yet, but use this as an opportunity to remind your kids of the gospel, to point them again to Jesus, the king that they need, who died for their sins and who rose again from the dead and who who lives to give them grace and give them salvation if they'll turn and trust in him. 
So I'm going to pray. Pastor Danny's going to come lead us in a song of reflection and response before we take these elements together. And friends, as we sing, if there's anything that you need prayer for, if there are sins that you need to, to confess, if there's a path of repentance you need to be walking on today, or if you need to place faith in Jesus for the first time, I'll be standing here down at the front. You come and pray with me. Let me know the need, the burden of your heart. Let's pray together and seek God for assurance and for help this morning before we take these elements together, reminding ourselves of the great gospel that we have come to believe, the great king that we have come to serve. Will you pray with me?